in the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel, we're told about David's mighty men. He had three top men who were his fiercest warriors. They were rightly named mighty men, not because of their military minds or their superhuman strength, although they had both of these. Rather, it was because they possessed a quality unlike the rest of David's army. What the author points out is their chief virtue was their ability to stand firm. They were men who David could count on to stand strong in the midst of the darkest storm. They were ones, when the fighting got the fiercest, that David could depend upon. When all other troops fled, these mighty men would stand firm in battle. Now, while we don't face literal battles, though perhaps it might feel that way at times, we do fight spiritual battles. Each and every one of us battle the flesh, we battle spiritual battles, and what we need is men and women who will stand firm like those mighty men of David, standing unified together in love, bound by the sound doctrine that we confess together, anchored in the Word of God. That's what we need to be. A number of years ago in England, there was a Methodist minister who was doing an ordination council for a young preacher. And the young preacher came to this older Methodist man in the midst of his interrogation and said, Sir, I do not believe that I can preach the River Thames on fire. In other words, he wasn't a a fiery preacher. He isn't one that he could preach revival meetings. And, And this older Methodist minister said to him, I don't care if you can preach the River Thames on fire. What I care about is if I drop you in the river, you'll sizzle. In other words, what he wanted was a preacher on fire. He wanted a preacher who was passionate and on fire, who stand and stood for something conviction. What the Apostle Paul was, was a man of conviction. He was a man who stood firm in the, in the face of spiritual battle, who did not back down when someone came at one of his churches. We learned last week that he toiled and struggled with tremendous energy and effort for a church that he never met because he loved them. We learned as we studied a number of weeks ago that the Apostle Paul was praying to a congregation whom he has only heard through reputation. And he called this church to be thankful for their redemption that they had received through the preeminent Christ, the one who rules and reigns over the old and new creation. And as we saw last week, as he moves into the body of this letter, he desires one thing for this congregation above the rest. It isn't for them to grow numerically. It isn't for them to build a big sanctuary or to have a big budget. He wants them to be mature in Christ. What he cared most for these Colossian Christians was to stand firm in the midst of a spiritual battle that they were going to face. 
And what we need as a congregation is to be unified in the doctrinal stances once for all delivered to the saints. That is why I chose this letter and why I want us to think about it. Because what matters most for us as a church is the spiritual health of our church, not necessarily the numerical size. What matters most is not how much we have in the bank, but how much Jesus is in our hearts. How much we know about Jesus. Not how much we're known in reputation in this community, but rather how much this community knows about Jesus because of our witness. And namely, our love for one another. We learned last week that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central vehicle by which God is displaying His glory among the nations. And that it is our privilege to suffer for the sake of the church, to give up, to sacrifice. That it is our privilege and our responsibility to serve the body of Christ. Paul assured them that they were a part of God's redemptive plan. And here in our text this morning, we'll turn to give a personal encouragement to them. That though he had never met this congregation, he had personal affection for them. He wanted to see them grow. He cared more about them than he did about his own freedom. He wanted them to grow in their knowledge of Christ and deeper their anchor in the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And that is what we want to think about this morning. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It's found on page 383 or thereabout. Looking for a large number 2. Hear the word of Christ this morning. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of Christ, of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul makes clear through this passage that Christians must encourage one another to guard against theological error. The temptations that these Christians were facing are no different than the temptations that you and I will face in this fallen world, and that is theological error. Theological error is as basic and as fundamental and as old as the Garden of Eden. And therefore, we must encourage one another 
to guard against it. How do we do that? Well, Paul outlines by studying and searching diligently for the treasures that are found exclusively in Christ. In other words, how do we guard against theological error? It is by knowing the mystery of God's salvation in Christ, by knowing Jesus better. So the purpose of our time today in thinking about that is first and foremost, your responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the members of First Baptist Church. That if we are to grow spiritually, if we are to defend the faith, if we are to guard against theological error, we must first and foremost recognize that it is our individual and corporate responsibility to tend and care for God's people. That we have covenanted together in membership in this local church so that we would lovingly correct Lovingly exhort, lovingly affirm those who are in covenant relationship. The point of this passage is about encouragement. An encouragement that produces, an encouragement that is aimed at spiritual growth. So we don't correct just to correct, to be right when others are wrong, but we correct in order that they might grow. Our aim is growth in love. And so Paul here in this passage offers us three ways we encourage one another to grow spiritually. How how can we, as individuals, participate in God's plan to help the other members of this church grow spiritually? Number one, we must affirm one another in love. Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 affirming this congregation. He affirms them in love, and he says, go therefore and do likewise. Affirm in love. Secondly, we must assure one another of the truth. We must assure one another that the truth is the truth and not a lie. Thirdly, we must anchor one another in the faith. We call one another back to the doctrines of the church. We call one another back to the doctrines revealed in Scripture because this is what causes us to grow in our faith. So number one, we see verses one and two, we must affirm one another in love affirm one another in love. Well, look at what Paul says. He affirms this congregation by telling them he has desires for them. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. You know, love defined by the world is reciprocal love. A love that receives. We love the lovable. It's hard to love certain people. All right? It just is. All right? And a lot of them are church members. It's hard to love. But here, Paul is saying that he has a desire for people whom he's never met, whom he will never meet. So, therefore, the basis of biblical love isn't merely reciprocal. 
We don't love in order to get something in return. Paul would have never received any reciprocal affection from this congregation. He'd never seen them before, but he has a desire for them. He has a desire, not that they give him more money, not that they give him more praises, but that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ. Notice Paul's ethic here, his work ethic. He has a great struggle for them. Paul here is using the similar military language that he used in verse 29, that he's struggling with all his energy. He, he's toiling night and day. He's, he's working two jobs. He's, he's, he's working hard for them. Here in the context of Colossians, he's most likely imprisoned because of his ministerial work. He wants them to understand that he is working hard for them, for their faith to grow. Paul's desire to make clear is clear to these Christians that they... Though he's never met, he works for their benefit. Though he does not know any of them personally, he still cares for them and personally struggles for them in prayer that they would mature in Christ. Friend, this short verse, verse 1, gives us, I think, just a small glimpse into the kind of Christian community that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ creates. A sacrificial relationship not dependent on being a consumer. Now, for our folks that were in our new members class, they get to hear the sermon all over again right now. They heard it this morning already. Now, I want you to hear something real, real, real quick. Churches that depend on programs create consumers, not producers. Churches that build big programs create people that are dependent on programs and not producing sacrificial relationship. Paul here would never receive one benefit from this church, yet he gives everything and sacrifices for them. What he's trying to cultivate is a congregation in Colossae of producers and not consumers. And it begins by understanding that we ought to have an affection for the members of this church apart from what they will do for us. Paul is struggling for a people whom he will never meet. And if Paul cares this much for Christians whom he will never meet, how much more should we care for those Christians whom we covenanted together in a local church body? How much more should we sacrificially give of our time and effort and energies, our Friday nights and our Sunday afternoons, in order to develop relationships such that we sacrificially help others follow Jesus? We must affirm one another with encouragement. Notice how he goes on. Number two, verse two. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Affirmation means leads to encouragement. Paul here in verse two lays out several ways this congregation was to affirm one another. They were to do it by encouraging one another. This implies a deliberate relationship. This implies investment. This implies commitment. 
They were committed to one another. They were committed to care for one another. They had their sights set on one another, not on themselves. That their hearts may be encouraged. Now the idea there of heart is is that of their souls. They aimed at encouraging their souls. They wanted to build up their souls. They wanted to, to do soul work, if you will. It wasn't merely that they had a good meal and felt good, but that their souls were good. Friend, if you've ever done soul work, it's hard work. It's difficult, it's arduous, it's painful, but it's necessary. We ought to invest in encouraging one another, to build one another up, to be invested individually in the word that we might take that word and help build up others but secondly here we affirm with love for one another he desired not only that they be encouraged but that they that they're knit together in love notice notice the verbal idea that paul paints here in this particular verse being knit together in love unified together bound together joined together He paints a picture of a tapestry, does he not? Something that is wed together, knit together, something that is bound together, that is committed in relationship with one another, that doesn't just quickly tear apart when when things get difficult, when when feelings get hurt, when when people do dumb things because they're sinners, but rather they're knit together for a love. What bound them together was was their love for one another, their care for one another. As Paul will say in Colossians 2, verse 19, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Friend, here's the point. If you do not submit to this kind of care, then you will not grow spiritually. Those on the fringes of a, of a healthy church die spiritually. In order to grow spiritually and to know know God better spiritually, it must require a commitment to the life of the body, a commitment to relationship in this congregation. That is how we grow. But but notice the verb. It is in love. And we've got a lot of different ideas on what love is. What we must care about most is what Jesus thinks about love. And Jesus commanded his disciples to love the way he, they received love from Jesus. How has Jesus loved you? That's how you ought to love others. Jesus loved you by going to the cross. Jesus loved you while you were yet in sin. And so our love must extend to sinners. Our love must also call sinners to repentance. Jesus doesn't let you stay in your sin. Jesus doesn't let you perpetuate your sin. No, Jesus brings you into the light by his spirit. So so part of love for one another is calling one another to live in the light. You know, as you think about how we often define a mature Christian, a mature Christian is perhaps someone who's older, who's been around the block a few times. 
Perhaps someone who attends regularly, who gives sacrificially. Perhaps someone who has a lot of knowledge of Bible stories or does a lot of religious activities. But here in this particular passage, Paul paints a very different picture of spiritual maturity. He paints a picture of one who is about the encouragement and the love of others. A mature Christian is who one who works sacrificially to the unify the congregation, not divide the congregation. One who seeks to lay down their personal preferences, their personal desires, in order for the whole body to be unified in love. What matters most is the unity of the congregation, not their own consumeristic endeavors. In other words, they come to church not to get something from church, but to give something to the body. This is what and how Paul describes a mature Christian. And as a congregation, we must see that it is not only our corporate responsibility, but our individual responsibility to affirm one another in love. But it is not merely love for love's sake. N.T. Wright says this, Living in a loving and forgiving community will assist growth in understanding and vice versa. As trust is confirmed in practice, and practice enables truth to be seen in action, so to be fully grasped. What is N.T. Wright's point? Uh, N.T. Wright has this idea in mind, is that, look, you can be the most loving person, but if you're not grounding that love in the truth, then you're not really loving someone. To say it this way, if you're not willing to call someone out when they're in sin, then you don't love them. And vice versa. If you're right on the theological spectrum and you've got all the theological boxes checked but you don't have love, then you've missed the point, friend. Because you know there are theologians who know the Bible better than you that are burning internally in hell. Because it's not merely knowing theology that saves, but surrendering your soul to the eternal God through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we see, secondly, we must assure one another in the truth. We affirm in love, but we assure in the truth. We want to assure one another that this, what is true, is true. Paul's desire, as it begins to unfold here in verse 2, is that they are knit together in love, notice it goes on, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. What a mouthful. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, there is a goal in mind, and that is to know Jesus better. That as a congregation, he desired that they would be assured of their faith in Christ. That they would believe the truth. He wants them to have a confidence, an assurance that the doctrines that they hold are the doctrines that are true. Now you say, well, why does he care so much about that? Well, they are being tempted by false doctrine. 
And one of the, the results of false doctrine is a lack of assurance. And you say, well, give me an example of that. Well, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, and when, when Satan is tempting Eve, what does he cause her to do with his half-truths? But to doubt whether or not God is who he revealed himself to be. Theological error breeds doubt and lack of assurance. How can we know we're truly saved? And so we must understand that understanding that knowledge is not merely for knowledge's sake, but so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the facts that we believe are true and trustworthy. So it's beyond just truth, but trustworthiness. And you'll see as he develops that we assure one another about the truth of Jesus. Look there at verse 2 again. That we have an understanding of what? The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now we talked about last week, very briefly, the mysterion, the mystery. The mystery isn't that it's a secret that nobody can figure out, but rather it is a secret that God is the one who reveals, that God is the one who is the author of revelation, and that if you were to seek and to understand apart from God's revelation, you would not come to an understanding of Christ. But, but it is given to you, and this mystery comes, and the mystery is about Jesus. This is why Paul goes on then in verse 3 to further define the mystery. Look what he says. The mystery is this, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom? You want knowledge? Look no further than the Christ. I like the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this. He says this, For it is in Christ and in Christ alone that men will find all the treasure of wisdom in knowledge. Paul's reminding these Christians that they do not need to go out searching for wisdom and understanding. We don't, we don't need to go to the world to figure out how to live life. We don't need to go to the world to find wisdom and understanding. Rather, we need to go to the scriptures, and there we find all we need about Jesus. He is furthermore, by this language employed, encouraging them to mine out the reservoir that is Christ in all of his knowledge and wisdom. Friend, do you understand? You will never grow beyond the knowledge of Christ. It's a bottomless well. You, 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 you and I will draw for all of eternity from the well that is Christ. We will continually draw upon the knowledge of Christ. This means we must fully understand it. We must grow to understand it more and more. The pursuit of the Christian life is the pursuit of knowing God better. John Calvin says it this way, The meaning, therefore, is that all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, by which he means that we are perfect in wisdom if we truly know Christ, so that it's madness to which know anything besides him. This is God's great trick on the world. 1 Corinthians says it this way, Paul says it, that God saves the foolish of the world to despise the proud. And, and you thought you were special. This is how he works. 
This is the economy of God. He chooses that which the world doesn't choose in order to despise the proud, to remind us that salvation is not by works, but by grace alone. Friend, I wonder this morning, as you think about the mystery of Christ and and this wonderful gospel that you have been a recipient and inheritant of, that you have been saved by grace in the death of Christ, that this is your inheritance, this is who you are. You are unified eternally to Jesus. Friend, I wonder how you've been tempted to doubt God's love for you in Christ. Notice again that Paul places such a premium on assurance as a means towards Christian maturity. The more we are assured, the more we are matured. The more that our identity is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus, the more radically and vulnerably we will live for Jesus. We're not afraid. God is big and people are small because of our identity in Christ. What is so rich about assurance of salvation? Notice here he points to this sort of settled heart that as we grow assured of the doctrines of grace, as we grow assured of the doctrine of the knowledge of God, as we grow assured of our salvation is once for all delivered to the saints, as we grow in this knowledge, we are no longer tossed to and fro. Our relationship with God is not described by those waves along the shoreline that come and go. That is not the Christian life. But steady and steadfast and firm. Friend, how are you tempted to neglect growth in the knowledge of Christ? Do you just feel like, ah, that's something I did as a kid and and, yeah, I'm not really into that anymore. Friend, do you see the value of why we gather on the Lord's Day at 9.30 a.m. and get up a little early to study God's Word together? Or why we meander back out here on Wednesday night after a really difficult week and and we've had a lot of work to do and at 6.30 we sit and open up and, and listen to that preacher go at it again through the Bible? We don't do this with aimlessly. We don't do this without purpose. We do this that we might grow in the knowledge of Christ. Friend, do you see also why you ought to pursue personal discipling relationships with one another? Stay late after church. Get to know someone you don't know so that you can develop a relationship with them to encourage them in their faith. Sing loudly when we gather here on the Lord's Day to encourage those around you that, that, that need to be reminded, trust me, they need to be reminded that before the throne of God above, they don't need to fear God. That if they're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, there's no fear. Read the scripture with a fellow member. Read a Christian book together. Pray together. In these ways, you see, we help one another deepen our own understanding of Christ. As members of this congregation, we ought to see it as our responsibility to encourage one another by assuring one another of the truth. That propositional truth about Christ is how we grow proportionally. The more we know of Christ, the more we will grow spiritually. Do you desire to grow spiritually? Thirdly and finally, we see in verses 4 and 5 that we must anchor one another in the faith. We have a responsibility to help hold one another in the faith. 
Now, don't misunderstand my point. My point isn't that we save each other but that we have a communal corporate responsibility to help one another get to heaven. That is why Jesus has designed the church to gather every Lord's Day. It's about the length we can go without losing our salvation. I riled up all the little Calvinists. They got all scared there. The point is, is that we need one another to get to heaven. If you want a better understanding of that, read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Christian couldn't get there apart from a friend. We have a responsibility here, Paul says, to guard one another against theological arguments that sound reasonable. Notice what he says. Friend, if you want a passage of scripture to chew on and maybe even scare yourself with, look here at verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, we're going to talk about this in the weeks ahead. But what Paul was concerned about was some plausible arguments that sounded really good and and might even be believable. Half-truths masquerading as the whole truth. Paul is writing these Christians so that they will not be taken by surprise nor led astray by well-crafted arguments. The enemy has been about this for thousands of years, friend, and you think you're going to stand up against him? He has whole universities built around, Christian universities built around disguising half-truths as whole truths. Consider again how he attacked our first parents in the garden by deceiving them about God's word. See, his tricks remain the same. He he has the same bag of tricks. He he doesn't really have a whole lot to pull from. He just pulls from the same bag of tricks over and over again. Did God really say? Did God really say it? And you're like, man, I don't know my Bible very good. I don't know if he really said it or not. You see, he makes his arguments so close to the truth. What did Paul say about the enemy? He said that Satan is an angel of light. What does that mean? It means he looks like the real deal. That is why those TV preachers look so appealing, friend. It's like, man, that that sounded pretty good. Actually, I like that. Because that's what your flesh wants to hear, you understand? You want to hear the message that God wants his best for you now. You you want to hear that you're going to be healthy forever and that you're going to be wealthy for for as long as you live. It's a good, man, that, that, that makes me feel good. And when the preacher stands up and he opens his Bible up and he begins to read verses out of those Bible, you're like, well, man, that's what God said. And you don't realize that they're twisting and distorting the word of God to, see, to, to satisfy their own evil desires. Like a fake watch or a diamond ring, which, which upon closer inspection, we can see the difference when we compare it to the original. So, as Christians, the exhortation here is to follow clear and faithful teaching. What is the remedy for dealing with false teaching is by knowing the truth yourself. If you're dependent upon a preacher to tell you what the Bible means, that's the problem. That's why we are committed here on Wednesday nights to teaching you how to self-feed. 
You say it in a worldly way, trying to work myself out of a job. Where you're, when you can self-feed and depend it to feed yourself with the word of God, you will not be prone to theological error because you will have the tools to know God and Christ better. As Christians, we are in a battle for the mind. Christ is trying to renew our minds and Satan is trying to distort our minds. And he will tell us all kinds of lies about Jesus and about his glorious gospel. So our first order must be to help guard one another from these reasonable arguments. And finally here, we ought to aim for stability of the faith. Notice what Paul says in verse four, 5, in the support of verse 4. So verse 5 kind of hangs on verse 4. He says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see two things, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now Paul says, hey, look, I'm not there physically, I'm, I'm not there, but, but I hope, if I, if I could just assure you, he says, I, I'm aiming at your stability of faith. I, I don't want you to be dependent on me. I want, I want you to be orderly. The idea here is, is of a military army, soldiers marching together. If you watch the United States military and the way they march in precision and all the training that goes in to, to making sure when they do the, the color guard changes and, and when they do these military marches that they're all marching in unison, that's what Paul has an idea here. That's the picture he has. A well-formed army marching to the tune of a single voice so that they will remain steady and orderly. And, and friend, don't confuse. It's not the voice of their pastor. It's the voice of Jesus as revealed in his word. He wanted them to have good order, but also he wanted them to be firm in the faith. He wanted them to be stable and steadfast. Paul desired to encourage these Christians as they faced false teaching that they would not grow weary and discouraged. When false teaching constantly bombards the church, we can grow weary. Two things happen. First, when we're accustomed to fighting spiritual battles and the battle ends, we turn to fight each other. Because that's all we knew what to do is just fight. So we fight each other. And secondly... We can grow unstable. The confidence that he has in the gospel is seen in the expectation to see their orderly lives and strong faith in Christ. Doug Moose says it this way. This epistle is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already affected. In other words, Paul here is providing for them a vaccination that would guard them against theological error that they needed to stand strong, to stand firm. And look what he says as he ends verse 5, what? Of your faith in Christ. This is similar to the phrase, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In other words... It's the same gospel that your mama taught you and when you believed. It hasn't changed, my friend. We need to get back to the basics is where we need to get. To the fundamentals of the faith. And that's what Paul is saying here. We need to remain firm in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you see it as your responsibility to help one another anchored in the truth? 
This means that we must take doctrinally seriously. We must take doctrine seriously. We must anchor one another in these truths. We don't read statements like the Nicene Creed to sound cool and hip and whatever is cool and hip. We do it to ground ourselves in doctrinal, propositional truths that transcend even the oldest member of this church. There ain't no member here that was alive in 325 A.D. In other words, it's older than you. Tradition older than tradition. To affirm that this is what Christians have held since the dawn of the church. That's what we want to do. We want to contend for the faith. We want to anchor our lives in this, to see it as a privilege. On June 6, 1944, the Allied troops launched a surprise attack against the shores of France. In that battle, known as D-Day, it was the decisive battle. It was the end of the war. But if you know World War II history well, you know that the war didn't end on June 6, 1944. The war waged for almost another year. In fact, many historians and those present said that the battle was the fiercest in that final year than it had been in all the years leading up to D-Day. The Allied troops had kept fighting the Germans all the way to Berlin until they surrendered on May 5, 1945. The victory had already been won, but the battle raged on. And as Christians, we find ourselves in a familiar place, in a very similar place. The victory has been won. Jesus has defeated the enemy on the cross. He's he's nailed it to the cross, as, as Paul says in Colossians 2. But the battle rages on. And the battle will rage on until Jesus comes again. And so we must stand firm in the truth. We must help one another Friends, this is why we must encourage one another to guard against theological error. This is why we study our Bibles, why we search diligently for the treasures of Christ, why we hold it as our responsibility to help one another, affirming one another in love, assuring one another of the truth, and anchoring one another in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In these ways, we guard and grow in the knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we simply would know Christ better. We pray that as a congregation that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Help us to love one another as Christ has loved us. We confess that we have so fallen short in this way. We have been so unloving in the way we've spoken about a brother or sister in Christ. And so unloving about the way that we've gone about the business of the church. And we confess that we've fallen short in this way. Forgive us, we pray. Father, we pray this morning that we would... Assure one another of the truth. Help us, we pray, to do this for your glory. Not to prove theological arguments right, but to lovingly call one another to the same doctrines. This is why we must anchor one another in this truth. Help us to do that, we pray. Help us to know the truth, live by the truth, and call others to submit to it. Help us to do this for your glory 
and our good in Christ's name. Amen.